the larger confusion area is, frankly, clinicians who are essentially being given one significant criteria that only affects less than a third of the patients that actually are considered to have Lyme's and eventually treated for Lyme. So there is a real disparity there with as far as how clinicians view this. And very often, you and I have had discussion about personal experiences where that they'll basically look at it and say, well, if it's not a rash, then I'm not going to treat you at this point. And without oversimplifying, most even infectious disease experts will tell you the simplest thing you can do if you're ever in doubt is treat with two courses of doxycycline prophylactically. And if you're wrong, the worst case scenario is somebody got a couple weeks dose of antibiotics. If you're right, you may have suppressed the symptoms and the disease much earlier and more effectively than otherwise. Have you, a loved one, or a friend been affected with Lyme disease? There are many different ways to go about diagnosing and treating Lyme incorrectly, and very few ways to do it right. In this special podcast series, Scott Endicott, Dr. Ben Lockwin, and Tom Fox uncover the shortcomings in the current standards and practices and open up a dialogue about how we can better help patients with this disease. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to episode two of the podcast series, Understanding Lyme Disease. In episode two, we look at change is the only constant, the diagnostic criteria and the Lyme challenge. In this podcast series, I'm joined by Scott Endicott, a sufferer of Lyme disease, as well as Dr. Ben Lockwin. In this episode, we explore why change is truly the only constant when you suffer with Lyme disease. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for episode two. And today we're going to take a look at change is the only constant diagnostic criteria and the Lyme challenge. Back again with Scott Endicott, clinical research professional, and Ben Lockwin, healthcare policy maven. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Good to be here as well. Throw out the first question. How do we test for Lyme disease? Good question. I think I would just quickly say that if someone's in an area where there are black-legged ticks present, which is typically the carrying vector of Lyme, so this is the so-called deer tick, and they're very small, by the way. I think we'll talk a little bit about that further in the episode, but if they're in an area where there are a lot of ticks prevalent, oftentimes a patient may come in and would have known that there was a tick attached to him or her and they had to remove it. The recommendation for removal remains to use tweezers above all else, but before there's any sort of rash or malaise, like Scott mentioned in episode one, there can be some blood tests that are conducted. And those fall into basically two categories. There's what's called an ELISA test, which is an acronym for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. And this essentially detects antibodies that the human body is producing against this Borrelia burgdorferi organism transmitted that causes Lyme disease. There's also what's called a Western blot test, and that is usually done as part two of a two-step approach. So a patient would give some blood, there'd be an ELISA test done to see if there are antibodies present, and then the Western blot test would look at antibodies to specific proteins within the Borrelia burgdorferi organism. Scott, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, well, so it's interesting 
those tests are pretty much the original diagnostic tests that have been used pretty much since the beginning. There's been some evolution in looking at PCR testing using, for instance, synovial fluid from a joint where um, the affected inflammation may be occurring, which was actually how I was diagnosed by an infectious disease expert at University of Pennsylvania in 2004. But that PCR test essentially is theoretically there to identify the presence of the actual infecting agent. And that becomes real complicated because of how we'll talk about a little later in this episode, the you know sort of moving target aspect of even how the Borrelia burgdorferi um, actually acts and behaves in, in real time. So given that the Western blot and the ELASA are essentially what's used as the primary, the big challenge there is that it's antibody dependent. So the first generally two few weeks to even up to six months uh, very often can give false negatives because your body hasn't built the antibodies up, mainly because the organism has a fantastic way of mutating, masking, and hiding its presence and how the body is responding to it. So, And that's science. That's not off the back end of the internet kind of stuff. That's all evolved science that talks about how that works. So you're in this moving target space. So really what diagnosis has been relied upon functionally is uh, that there is an erythema migrans rash, a bullseye rash that has been considered to be the primary symptom that is clearly able to identify Lyme. And the problem with that is that all the scientific evidence shows that roughly 30% of uh, Lyme patients actually have the rash. So the symptoms become, once again, the primary diagnostic criteria. And there's a long list of symptoms that mirror and map to a number of other autoimmune diseases. And so, again, as we talk a little bit later, we'll foreshadow that there's a lot of confusion about which diseases are which and which can be attributable to Lyme, which, again, makes it very challenging in the patient experience. That's interesting, Scott. So I want to jump in there and ask you something about that. So the CDC in 2013 had suggested that 70 to 80 percent of patients would develop this characteristic bullseye rash, this erythema migrans, as it's known as. And that contrasts very strongly with what seems to be the actual prevalence of that rash that you had just mentioned. So that can give patients a lot of confusion there, too. Do you want to maybe opine on that a little bit? And more importantly, Ben, I think the larger confusion area is frankly, clinicians who are essentially being given one significant criteria that only affects less than a third of the patients that actually are considered to have Lyme's and eventually treated for Lyme. So there is a real disparity there with as far as how clinicians view this. And very often, you and I have had discussion about personal experiences where that they'll basically look at it and say, well, if, if it's not a rash, then I'm not going to treat you at this point. And without oversimplifying, most even infectious disease experts will tell you the simplest thing you can do if you're ever in doubt is treat with two courses of doxycycline prophylactically. And if you're wrong, the worst case scenario is somebody got a couple weeks dose of antibiotics. If you're right, you may have suppressed the symptoms and the disease much earlier and more effectively than otherwise. And that's interesting because... What was mentioned in episode one of this podcast was essentially that 
in looking at the diagnosis and then the follow-on treatment for it, the longer you wait, the less likely the, the treatment is to be efficacious. Right. So what you're talking about there too is also supported by some good evidence-based medicine. There was a um, paper written in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001 by a fellow named Nadelman. And that was the first to pioneer this idea of giving 200 milligram dose of doxycycline as soon as somebody had had borne witness to a deer tick that was biting them. So before there's even any test or waiting for a rash, it's to immediately take a 200 milligram dose of doxycycline. And that showed 87% efficacy at preventing a rash. But then the question becomes, is preventing a rash the only thing that we're concerned about? Gentlemen, if I could change the focus just a little bit, because I heard some, I'm not sure disturbing is the right word, but certainly challenging issues. You have patients manifesting different symptoms. You have a disease that actually may be mutating or changing. And then you have a series of symptoms, which may be Lyme disease, but may be indicia of others' disease. Where does that leave the patient? What should the patient think about, or how do they even think through the situation? That's pretty much the $100,000, if not more, question. That is why the Lyme disease sort of paradigm and conundrum has sort of become what it is. You've got this sort of urgent need to quickly identify and treat. And if you talk to many infectious disease specialists, they very often will look at this challenge as almost a challenge to the diagnostic criteria rather than, to Ben's point, treat prophylactically and work out the details in the background. And so where that puts patients very often is in a really difficult bind between very often standardized medicine and then some of the other treatment modalities that I know your primary point in your website is ethics and compliance. And there's a big aspect of this that maybe we can cover in another podcast looking at the physician side of this, the clinician side. There's many Lyme specializing physicians that are forced to treat outside of accepted protocols in order to address symptoms. Many of those same physicians are Lyme victims or uh, patients, sufferers or patients themselves, which sort of allows them to sort of see things in a broader perspective rather than just the CDC clinical space. That was a beautiful answer. I couldn't even possibly add more. I would say it's a multi-million dollar question because there was between 1998 and 2002, a vaccine for Lyme disease. And it was pulled from the market for a variety of reasons that I won't get into now. But after several million dollars in sales, it was pulled from the market after about four years. And there certainly are challenges to developing vaccines, but it's something that obviously had been done and could be done again. And there are millions of dollars and frankly, millions of patients out there who are waiting for better treatment. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but Ben, your point really, I think, will inform tomorrow's podcast, which is treatment solutions. So I look forward to continuing that conversation. Thanks. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you found episode two on change is the only constant diagnostic criteria and the Lyme challenge informative. I certainly learned a lot, and the key area that we talked about on episode two was how do you diagnose Lyme disease? There are many instances of false positive, often even after having been bit by a tick, 
someone may not know for multiple weeks, six weeks, four weeks, that they have been infected with Lyme disease. It may appear as a rash and they go to their doctors and they are given a cream to treat the rash. So the longer you wait for treatment for Lyme disease, usually in the form of doxy that we're going to talk about on another episode, the less effective treatment is. So this is a big problem. And as both Ben and Scott say in the episode, from the 64,000 to the 100,000 to the million dollar question is, how can we get a vaccine for Lyme disease and when will it be available on the market? But it all begins with this diagnostics and determining whether you have Lyme disease. And this continues to be one of the biggest challenges because many people have it for quite some time before they know they've been infected. I mean, once again, if it appears one of the earliest symptoms is usually a rash, and that's often misdiagnosed. So frankly, a pretty scary problem. And if you're bitten by a tick and Ben identifies what the ticks look like, and then uh, if you find one on yourself, what you should do to remove it. So I hope you'll join us again tomorrow where we begin to talk about some treatment solutions in the episode entitled A Cloud of Doxy and Away We Go, Conventional Treatment Solutions for Lyme Disease. Thanks so much for listening to this episode.